0: Hi, you handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where seven minutes of heaven is just a sensory deprivation chamber we take turns using, just floating in nothingness till someone. Fucking comes beating on the door, being like, my turn, get the fuck out. So grab your eye mask and your gummy edibles and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're doubling down on the convo around parentification. This is a follow-up episode to the first parentification epi we did. So if you haven't listened to that one, you might want to scoot on out of here and check that one out. But to review, Parentification is a form of child abuse where children are required to assume a parental role with their parents or siblings. That could look like taking care of them emotionally, like taking care of their parents' depression, for example, or physically, like making meals or doing the grocery shopping when the children aren't old enough to handle what's being asked of them. We covered a ton of the root stuff in the first episode. It turns out, There's a lot to parentification. So to help us get clear on everything we need to know, including other ways it can look, how it affects our attachment styles, and how we have adult relationships with the parents who parentified us, I'm so excited to welcome Amanda ichihashi Yeagerman back to
1: the pod. Hi, Amanda. Oh, hi, Remy. I'm so happy to be here again because being here last time was my first rodeo with podcasts. And I had so much fun. I had trouble falling asleep that night because I was buzzing with excitement, and it just felt so good to share in this way. And it felt creative, and I felt so welcome. So I'm excited to delve in further today.
0: Oh, yay! That makes me so happy that mm-hmm. you were that. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. Usually, we hate not being able to sleep, but I, uh, I, I, I approve of this reason for not being able to sleep. That's a good one. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming back on. And I know we talked briefly about your astrology last time. You're a Leo cat moon Pisces rising. Mm -hmm. And last time you were on, you were worried about the Pisces full moon that was coming up. How
1: did you do with that? Uh, In true Piscean fashion, I cried a lot and took some hot baths and, you know, cried in the hot baths. And (laughs) I was kind of going through an emotional shit show. And it got to the point where my usual, like resistance was worn down. So I just let myself feel the fucking feels and cry. And actually I would feel better after a few minutes. And I was able to be like, well, got to blow my nose and make some lunch, I guess. So yeah, (laughs) big feelings for that Pisces full moon.
0: Can we all just like take a minute for just blowing your nose and making lunch? You know, sometimes (laughs) it's the way to go. I'm, I'm so glad you survived and so glad that you're back on to help us navigate part two of this conversation. I've already kind of laid out my, ex- my experience on this topic in the last episode. So I think we can just dive in. Mm-hmm. Let's start with laying
1: out what the different types of parentification are. Right. Um, so parentification can actually look a couple of different ways. So to sum it up, under the parentification umbrella, we have it where the kid takes on the role of the parent of their parent. We also have it where the kid takes on the role of the spouse of their parent, AKA spousification, also known as emotional incest. We also have it where the kid takes on the role of kind of the adult peer of their parent. And lastly, we also have it where the kid takes on the role of the parent of their own, usually younger siblings. So all of those are flavors of parentification.
0: Okay. And remind us what emotional incest is and how it relates to spousification.
1: Right. Well, last time we spoke about how emotional incest is when um, the parent relies on the kid of any age for the kind of emotional support or companionship or sharing of information that is actually appropriate for a spouse or a partner. And despite the word incest here, emotional incest doesn't necessarily mean that things of a sexual nature are happening or that sexual abuse is happening. But what it does indicate is an inappropriate level of closeness and role-fulfilling that is beyond the child's maturity. Now, another more clinical term for emotional incest is spousification. Um, Spousification, again, is a kind of parentification, and it literally means the process and function of a parent placing a child into the role of the spouse or partner of the parent. So it's making the kid into the surrogate right wife or surrogate husband. So again, here the parent is using the kid to fulfill the parent's own unmet needs, putting the kid in situations beyond their maturity level, all while the parent is ignoring or not meeting the emotional or developmental needs of the kid. So for example, If mom and dad are divorced and dad confides in his daughter the way he used to confide in mom, and he relies on the daughter for emotional support and shares information about himself as if the kid was an adult partner. So the dad would use the daughter to satisfy his emotional needs. And indeed, this may make the kid feel like an adult or make her feel like she's special or kind of mature to be in this role. And it, it may be true, there is a special feeling here, but it's also true that the kid is not an adult. And so that adult-child relationship and the boundaries there are violated and become skewed because the dad has put the daughter into the role of the now absent wife in a way that is going to have lasting negative effects on the daughter, hence spousification.
0: Okay. Let me jump in here. So in the last episode, I told a story about my mom sobbing and asking us when we were super little, like five and seven, I was five. Like, why doesn't anyone love me? Why don't I have a husband? Why doesn't your father love us? Um, And also kind of telling us about how she was abused as a child. And um,
1: is this an example of spousification? I remember you sharing that memory and I'd say that was for sure parentification because she was looking to you for comfort and to soothe her for some pretty heavy stuff. I'd also say there were strong elements of specifically spousification as well. So let's unpack this a little bit. Um, Okay, so in terms of just the context, mom looked to you, the child and the female child at that for comfort and companionship when she had no spouse or partner, The next thing is that she confided in you things that ideally should have been shared you know with a partner or you know, maybe the estranged partner, or at the very least another adult. The next thing is she looked to you for a very high level of emotional support and to fulfill emotional needs for some very adult themes, right? adult level questions for adult size problems, questions relating to romantic love and life partners and sexual partnerships. And it sounds like from her mental state, she was looking to you for the kind of assurance and soothing that maybe a parent would give their own kid. But your, Remy, your role as the kid was that you acted like the parent in that situation. And while you so sweetly provided comforting words to mom, there's just no way that the brain of a five-year-old or seven-year-old could truly wrap their head around or begin to answer those kinds of questions like, hmm, why does no one love my mom? Um, What makes my dad not love us? Right? And even if a kid were very precocious and were to try to figure out these questions, They would still need an emotionally healthy, balanced adult to help support them, understand those in a way that would match where the kid is in terms of brain development, emotional maturity, and sure, life experience. So in other words, Remy, as compassionate and precocious as I'm sure you were as a kid, in a sense, it was simply beyond your developmental stage. So another indication of spousification here is the content of the conversation. And I think you literally responded to mom saying something like, well, I love you, I'll marry you. Oh yeah, that's right. I was like, I'll be your husband. Yeah. Yeah, literally. So in those moments, again, you provided support to her and you offered to be the stand-in husband. Also, she was clearly not in a place to support you to help you understand and process what it's like for you or the both of you with the fact that dad wasn't around. Mm. And that didn't happen because you were too busy taking care of her. And another indication that tells me that this was spousification is the fact that you've said on the last show, how the effects of this dynamic negatively impacted you in adult relationships right, impacted your self-esteem, impacted your ability to set boundaries and know you won't know your own needs, and that you've had to put in tremendous efforts as an adult to heal this. So putting all of these pieces together leads us to the conclusion that this was an example of spousification, right, making you the stand-in partner, and also, you know, general old parentification, because she was looking to you to comfort her um, in a way that you would have if you were her parent.
0: So, okay. I have to jump in here and say, this is so fascinating because in the time since you and I recorded the first episode, Mm -hmm. I actually have gone through a big transformation with a very close friendship where I kind of realized it was time to let the friendship go. And part of it was because of exactly this thing, this, it was like, it was so ingrained in me early on this tendency or this sort of like, maybe this learned behavior, right. Of like, I take care of you. Mm -hmm. I take care of you. I'm going to take care of you and not noticing that that person wasn't able to take care of me in return, not noticing Mm -hmm. that it wasn't reciprocated to the same degree. So like my sort of, um, being able to take care of this person went up to a 10 and this person being able to take care of me went up to a six. And I had just sort of been not noticing slash ignoring that for a very long time. And I think it's because like it was such a normalized part of my life from right. an early age that I, my job is to, if you're suffering, I do, I go, I turn that volume all the way up to 10. I do absolutely everything to take care of you. I figure out what you need, you know, like all the things. Mm-hmm. But if I am suffering, I don't have the same. Well, let's say in the past, I haven't had the same expectations that people be able to show up for me at that 10 level. Right. And I'm getting to a place in my life where I'm like, Oh, if I'm going to show up at a 10, I need other people to show up at a 10 also. And it doesn't make a person bad. If they can't show up at a 10, it just means that they're not the right fit for me. And it's such an interesting thing to be talking about this with you now and talking about what the effects of, you know, parentification and spousification are as adults. And I just want to jump in and say for anyone who maybe can relate, really look at whether or not you're also getting your needs met. Because when we were parentified in this way, early on, we learned that people don't have to show up for us the way that we show up for them our job is to just always be there for them. Right. Cause like, like you said, my mom couldn't take care of my needs in that moment. And that, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't my focus. My focus was on her.
1: Right. Wow. That's a lot of awareness and healing and shedding that you've been going through. Yeah. That must be tough, but it's a sign of healing like gold star on that. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. So yeah, um so an important note on parentification that we didn't get to last time, but I wanted to clarify here because it's so important, is that parentification, of course, can also look like the child taking on the parent role of siblings, usually younger siblings. And this is fairly common, and in a way it makes sense or it can seem natural or you know, practical that the oldest or older kids, help, guide, or do some element of helping to raise the younger kids, like helping little brother get ready for school in the mornings or trying to get little sister to follow the rules when mom and dad aren't around. So many families have an element of this kind of older kid as mini parent to the other kids dynamic happening. And just because you did help your little brother with his math homework doesn't by itself mean that you are parentified in general, and it doesn't necessarily mean you are parentified in a harmful way, but where it gets sticky and becomes the kind of maladaptive and destructive parentification again, is if that kid is constantly burdened with excessive responsibilities and put into the parent role beyond their development and maturity And where the parent is overly relying on the kid to serve as a mini parent and where the parent no longer provides support or acknowledgement or gratitude to the kid. So here, the kid would not get to have a normal childhood. And this role reversal would cause lasting negative impacts to things like self-esteem and the ability to have balanced relationships as they grow up. Right. So that's that type of parentification where a child is made to be a parent to the siblings.
0: Got it. Yeah. I think this was absolutely what happened with my sister. I sort of briefly, very, very briefly touched on that in the last episode, but she was babysitting me when I was like six or seven years old. So um, I think I think she and, and I want to say, like, I think it would be really easy for these children to grow up, to be like sort of resentful or feel like they didn't, you know, get a childhood or feel Mm -hmm. like really anxious because like, for example, I remember one time we were alone. I think I was five and she was seven, or maybe I was six and she was eight. She was in the shower and I walked into the bathroom to ask her if I could cook macaroni on the stove. And she said, yes. And when she came out of the shower I was standing in front of the stove and she said, I was like paralyzed with fear. I was just like staring at the stove because I had taken a plastic bowl of Mac, like leftover macaroni and cheese and just put it on the stove and turned the burner on under it. And it was on fire. Right. Cause like, that's what happens. And my sister, I, I can't remember how she did. I think she put on oven mitts and she like kind of scoot, slid it into the sink and turn the water on. So we did not perish in flames that day, but she really was navigating scary adult situations with me when she was super young. Um, you know, like seven, eight. And then actually when I was eight, I started babysitting my baby brother who was one. So that was sort of a part of my story too. Although mine, it was more intermittent hers. It was like, it was happening all the time. And I think, I mean, she was taking care of me all the time is what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I could absolutely, we haven't talked about that, but I could absolutely see that that could just kind of create this like early onset onset anxiety where you're just like nervous all the time because you're having to handle situations that are just beyond you.
1: Mm-hmm. I could totally see that and literally putting out fires. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Things got for sure sketchy with the macaroni thing and I think if it was me, I would be triggered by macaroni for life. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So hearing that memory uh, makes me want to clarify how there are two main ways that a kid can be parentified. So one way is called instrumental parentification, which basically means tangible tasks like doing all the cooking and cleaning, making financial decisions, uh, getting a job and then handing over the paycheck to mom. Another type is called emotional parentification, like consoling a distressed parent, being the peacekeeper when people fight. So basically doing emotional labor. So again, where do we draw the line between regular or regular-ish life and family experiences that kind of push us into another stage of maturity versus when it becomes harmful and long-lasting negative impacts, and just too much. So here we, again, look for things like, is the child consistently taking on way too much responsibility beyond their developmental capabilities? Are they doing that, you know, maybe without getting support from the parent to the point where, again, the roles are reversed, where the kid loses out on part of their childhood and has negative ramifications from this as they get older. Mm. So, fun fact, or actually, fucking sad fact, um, <laughs> there were a few studies done in 2007 that was looking at instrumental versus emotional parentification and their effects, and they found that emotional parentification was more harmful than instrumental parentification. Wow! And I'm guessing that's because with instrumental parentification alone, a kid still could get the healthy, available, emotional support from the parents who still acts like the parent. Whereas with emotional parentification, the kid is by definition, giving the emotional support to the parent without getting it in return. Oh, fuck. Right. Uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. So that memory you shared with the kitchen disaster and other things you shared with the overall dynamic in the household, that's an example of your sister being at least emotionally, uh, sorry, instrumentally parentified. Right.
0: Right. Okay. And I think that just what you said makes so much sense. I mean, I'm just like, I'm integrating a lot of um, realizations and, you know, like mm. I mentioned earlier um, changes in my life right now around getting needs met and, You know, the last episode, the episode I did in between our two episodes was about betrayal and something really powerful that my guest said on that episode was that it's not enough to ask to have your needs met you have to also see if the other person can actually meet those needs. And I think for those of us who were parentified, this is so important because we're not used to being the one who has the needs, right? Like our parents were the ones who had the needs that mattered. Our needs didn't really matter as much, right? Uh, Especially our emotional needs. So for us, it's a huge hurdle, to ask to have our needs met. Right. It's like terrifying. We're so scared. Right. right. We're, we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of conflict, whatever it is. And so I think what happens with, or what has happened in the past with me is that once I ask for it, I feel like I've cleared the fucking hurdle. I did right. the big, scary thing I'm done, but you're not done because the other thing is that that person may just not be able to meet your needs. And right. When you are so used to not having your emotional needs met, you'll ask to have your needs met, needs met, they're not met. And then you're still, you're like, well, that's kind of fine. We'll just, we'll just keep going here. No, the smaller hurdle is asking to have your needs met. After that, there's a bigger one. And that is making a decision that's firmly in your favor. Once Mm -hmm. you see whether or not that person can meet your needs, because if they can't, and by the way, I think if you're parentified, there's a good chance that you are emotionally involved with people who can't meet your needs. We're used to it. Right. Exactly. So, and I, and I also do want to say people who can't meet our needs, they're not, it's not a, it's not like a, you know, it's not like a moral dictate, right? Like I'm not saying that these Mm -hmm. are bad people. What I am saying is we deserve people who can meet our needs. And Mm -hmm. especially because I think people who are, who were emotionally parentified are so used to being emotionally generous and being and like turning that emotional generosity dial up to 10, you know, Mm -hmm. there are going to be a lot of people whose dials don't go up to 10. And so the the big thing is like, okay, if I'm giving it a 10, are you going to give it a 10? And if you're not, then what do I do? Right? Like, what decision do I make? So I just want to, I want to say that because I think that's, um, anyway, it's what I'm going through right now.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So maybe, so maybe it's helpful for other people. And, and actually like, for me, it has felt like, I feel like I'm adulting in a way that I never have where I'm just really like, Whoa, my fucking needs matter. So hopefully that's helpful. But I wanted to ask you this other thing, because when you and I were talking the other day, you mentioned that there can also be cultural considerations with parentification. can you kind of can
1: you talk us through that? Sure. so all of this parentification stuff ranging from how we're defining it, how it's been studied, studied, who's studying it, where we draw the line between what's normal versus what's harmful, largely depends on what culture you're coming from mm-hmm. and even the concept of what a childhood is and when it starts and how long it lasts and what that entails, that's also changed over time. And it's also culturally dependent. So, you know, we got to acknowledge that our talks and my perspective and education and definition of parentification are coming from the lens of, yeah, the United States in 2022, for better or for worse, right within this particular culture and set of values and definitions that is dominated and framed and dictated by straight, white, cis Christian men. Right. Right. So what you and I, Remy, would consider to be maladaptive parentification might be considered just normal or necessary or like, hey, that's just like what the fuck people do to step up for their family. That's just what it means to be a good son in another part of the world. Mm. So there's plenty of cultures where a kid taking on what you or I would call um, parentification or a spousified role might be considered a strength or a sign of maturity or a signal that childhood is now over or a show of family diligence or filial piety in you know, another place like China or Guatemala or any other variety of places. So we do have to consider cultural differences as well as circumstance. And by circumstance, I mean the family specific situations where at the time for the specific cultural context, it seems necessary or easiest or the best decision to put the kid in a very, very mature role. Like putting the oldest girl in charge of the childcare of your four younger siblings. Shout out to my auntie who did that. Or caring for sick parents or having a son who has to quit school and take on a job to help the family earn money if the father dies. Mm -hmm. So even within the United States, There's many instances of immigrant parents who don't speak fluent English, who will bring their kids to their doctor's appointments or help them fill out paperwork or navigate systems. But that alone doesn't automatically mean that kid's being parentified in a harmful way. So yeah, uh, culture and circumstance are considerations here.
0: Oh, okay. So, so in other words, the United States is not the fucking end all be all of <laughs> decreeing what is what in the world. <laughs> no, thank you so much for sharing that. Cause I think that is really important that we also acknowledge that, um, our experience isn't the only experience that fucking matters. Let, let's switch gears here a little bit. Tell me about the impact parentification can have on
1: attachment styles. Cool. Yeah. Um, Big topic here. (laughs) So attachment theory in general says that as babies and young children, our sense of security and safety depends on how physically and emotionally available and attentive our primary caregivers were to us. Mm -hmm. Primary caregivers are usually the parents, but it could really be anyone who is our main caregiver. So what's important here is how attuned that primary caregiver was to our needs, how we bonded and connected with them, and how safe and cared for we felt. When we, as youngsters, know that our caregiver is reliable and safe, Then we feel more capable and secure in exploring the world as we grow, because it's a harsh world, but if we have like a safe place to come for comfort, um, that helps us. Right. Moreover, adults forming relationships, particularly intimate relationships, will tend to replicate the kind of attachment they had with the primary caregivers. So for example, if a baby cries for hunger or because of a poopy diaper or whatever, are the caregivers going to respond quickly to its needs? Are they gonna take their sweet time and the baby gets more and more agitated? Will the caregivers be patient and warm or will they be angry and annoyed? Will the caregiver respond consistently over time Or will they sometimes be comforting and other times be irritated? God, are the caregivers even around? Or if they're around, are they preoccupied with their own thing? Right. So all of these possible responses that we can get from a caregiver are also literally affecting a child's brain development and the sense of trust that someone is going to care for them or not. So when that kid gets a little bit older, then we can start to think, okay, how are they going to react when the parent leaves? I mean, like leaves the room and puts them instead in the care of a stranger, like a babysitter or a teacher. Will that kiddo get upset? Are they going to even notice? Will they get confused? Or will they not like even give a fuck if dad is there or not? So there's very famous studies that look at that very situation and they look at how a kid responds. And from there, the observers who are doing the research can usually predict or extrapolate the kind of attachment that the kid and the parent have.
0: Mm, So basically they'll look at, so they'll have the parent with the child in a room, the parent will leave, and then they'll study how the child responds to that. And from that, they can tell what kind of attachment style there is between the parent and the child based on how the child reacts when the parent leaves the room. Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, there is that. And then a very kind of a similar study is like parent and kid hang out in a room, and then a stranger enters and then hangs out for a minute and then the parent leaves and leaves the kid with the stranger and then you know they'll look at that
0: fascinating okay so basically
1: if the kid is left with the stranger and the kid cries cuz mom or dad isn't there it's actually considered like a healthy thing right because it means that the kid notices and cares that their hopefully trusted loving you know parent left and they'll have big feelings makes sense Right. Yeah. So that's attachment theory. Now, out of that is also the idea of attachment styles. So attachment styles are the ways that people participate and behave in relationships like adult friendships or romantic relationships that, again, are usually derived from the way people attach to the primary caregivers when they were babies and young kids. So attachment styles develop early in life and they often, but not always remain stable over time. So it has a lifelong influence on one's ability to communicate emotions and needs, how to respond in a conflict and how to, you know, kind of like what you were saying, how to form expectations and trust in relationships so in the 1960s and 70s, researchers started to look at these patterns and they came up with four adult attachment styles. Uh, a lot of people have probably heard of them. So one is anxious slash preoccupied. That's me, um, Woo woo. Uh, yeah, shout out, <laughs> represent. Uh, the second is avoidant dismissive. The third one is secure. And the fourth one is disorganized, or sometimes it's called fearful and avoidant. Mm -hmm. So here's a really quick rundown of each of them. So that first one, uh, anxious preoccupied, it's also sometimes called anxious insecure or anxious ambivalent. So those with an anxious attachment style have problems trusting others. They often worry that people will abandon them. And so they often seem clingy or needy. Mm -hmm. Um, The avoidant dismissive type is identified by problems with intimacy and getting close. And so these folks have low emotional investments in their relationships.
0: Mm, These were my favorite guys to date in my twenties. Loved it.
1: Yeah. Right. It's so sexy. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to talk about that later. Oh, Um, you could never (laughs) possibly love me. Great. Let's fucking do this. I love a project. I love a challenge. Okay so the uh, the third type um, secure that is characterized by feelings of trust and safety in relationships so children who are securely attached feel safe and supported by their caregivers and then securely attached adults then grow up and they are able to form lasting relationships well la di da good for that no I'm just <laughs> i just can't <know>. show off <laughs> Yeah, really. What do you jog at 6 a.m. every morning? (laughs) Um, And that fourth type, that disorganized or sometimes called fearful or avoidant, that is a mixed bag, right? This is marked by a mix of behavior that can range from avoidance to clinginess and then back to avoidance and then back to clinginess. So people with this attachment style often long for close relationships, but they also fear trusting others and getting hurt. So yeah, shout out to my shittiest ex-boyfriend for fully embodying this one.
0: (laughs) Well, to be fair, honestly, I think I show up with this one when I date also, I think I or like, no, let me, no, that's not true. (laughs) I show up with this one in the way that I think about men. I feel I really want a relationship with one, but I also don't trust them and, and avoid dating like I never date. I'm working on it, but Mm -hmm. I think outside of that, I think, um, with friends, I'm somewhere between like anxious and secure depending Mm -hmm. on the situation and I'm anxious in career. So I think it can, it can look different ways with different groups, right? Like you could be one way with, that's what I've heard, but yeah. But so I think I show up in, in a few different ways anyway, keep going. Sorry. Yeah,
1: no, I, I love how you're identifying how, you know, in different aspects of your life, different styles kind of crop up for you.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I think once I, if I do start dating someone, I, I feel anxious. I get, I, I go into anxious attachment. Yeah.
1: Got you. Yeah. So looking at these four types, you know, to, to, to piggyback off what you're saying, I personally don't think of these styles like, yep, I'm 100% avoidant 100% of the time for right. the rest of my life. You know, I think of it more like, I have my dominant type Mm. and I have also these subtypes. So maybe I'd say that 70% of the time, you know, I'm securely attached, Uh, 20% of the time I'm avoidant, and the remaining 10% is a fun little mix of disorganized and anxious. Also, this shit is not written in stone. I mean, yes, we may arise into adulthood with a predominant attachment style, that may be shaped by trauma, but I'm hopeful that people can shift and spend more time in other attachment styles, um, namely the secure type. And that's one of the main reasons why people come to therapy. So our question is, does parentification impact attachment styles? And the answer is yes, because both parentification and attachment styles involve the parent-child relationship and the bonding process and they both say something about the quality and nature of that parent-child dynamic um depending on how safe and secure it was that is going to affect us as we mature and will impact how we participate in other relationships
0: okay i want to jump in here this is so fascinating to me Mm -hmm. and i and i just kind of i have a story that i thought of so you know when I was like 19, my mom was in an awful accident. It was terrible where she was essentially run over by a Hummer and it broke her pelvis in multiple oh, places. Jesus. Yeah, it was it was bad. She was in the hospital for a month after it happened and I didn't visit her the whole time, nor did I help my sister take care of her when she finally got out of the hospital and needed someone, needed someone to help her at home. My sister, like she was in college at the time, she left and so was I. She left school for a semester to just like full-time focus on being a caregiver to my mom. And I didn't even come home. (laughs) Like my, and my mom said that she thought I didn't visit her because I couldn't bear to see her in such a terrible state. And I didn't correct her on that, but that wasn't it. I actually... I couldn't handle the idea of caretaking anymore. It was like a visceral feeling in my body where I just absolutely recoiled. Everything in me was like, I don't have anything left to give you. Right. The idea of it completely drained me. And of course, you know, I didn't know about parentification then, but I knew that my resources were tapped and I just couldn't. So whereas I definitely feel more like I struggle with anxious attachment, I can definitely relate to the way that parentification might turn you off to being emotionally available or being, um, being emotionally generous, right? Like as an adult, I mean, I don't have, nor do I want kids. And I think sometimes I think that has a lot to do with it too, where it was just like, by the time I became an adult, I was so exhausted from feeling like I care took emotionally for so long in my childhood that I, I just like the idea of dealing with someone else's needs 24 seven, which is what parenting is. You know, I was, I'm just like, I can't fucking do it. Right. Stab me. I can't fathom this. Yeah. Like no way, dude. Um, so is this, is this kind of what we're talking
1: about here? Yeah. Well, um, that point of view that you shared is valid and it makes perfect sense how you'd feel that way, given your experience and To each their own. So, yeah, that segues into another way that parentification can influence attachment style. Namely, it can lead to the avoidant, dismissive type, Mm. where within the context of the parentified upbringing, you know, it's understandable how you wouldn't want to get roped into another caregiving role yet again with a partner. And you might consciously or subconsciously push away that intimacy. Or push away the potential for being in that caregiving role again. So in the avoidant dismissive attachment style, that's where you as the adult are very challenged to engage in intimacy or caregiving. So you would want to keep relationships at the surface level or keep them short or at arm's length, you know, lots of defense mechanisms. Um, but the point is that there is a limited amount that someone with this style is going to invest in relationships because they don't want to get too close in social and romantic relationships out of fear of a repeat of the harmful patterns of childhood. Mm. So another characteristic with this style here is that as adults, folks are also unwilling or unable to share their true thoughts and feelings with others. So, kind of in the last episode, that decreased emotionality, um, having a hard time being aware and expressing our emotions, that comes through pretty hard here. With parentification. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Makes sense. So, there is also this other attachment style the disorganized, uh, fearful avoidance style as another possible outcome of parentification. And I have an example of this and it's not about my shitty ex, I swear. It's <laughs> a uh, so composite example here. Um, there's a man who, whose mom sadly got really sick when he was 12 years old. And so for years until her early death, he was the primary caregiver physically and emotionally. And I'm talking him emptying her bedpans and cleaning up her vomit and giving her her medications and very sad and intense stuff. And dad was not in the picture. Well, it was awful. And after she died, he went on to become a very dedicated EMT as a career. So I suppose that you know caregiving in this very intense medical context made sense to him or was familiar to him. Right. Well, after that, he got married. And after a while, his wife needed some help. And so he stepped up to support her, but she kept on needing more and more. And it seems like she didn't take as much responsibility for herself as she could have. And he continued to pick up the slack and do more and more for her. Well, he became tired and frustrated and resentful out of that dynamic. And they divorced after a few years. Now, in every relationship since then, he's hyper aware of what happened both with his mom and his ex wife. And the thinking is about how demanding his caregiving profession is as well. And so he's keeping romantic relationships at arm's length. So for this guy, you know, there's a lot of demands on him with previous relationships and the current job. So he's not really going to give anything extra. But yet, he'll verbally state or you know put on his tinder or whatever that he's quote looking for something meaningful mm. when he gets into new relationships he'll he's pretty good at doing the tangible things for lovers like giving gifts and helping them fix things and cooking for them but when he's asked to provide emotional support or listen to someone vent or bring his girlfriend food when she's sick in bed he gets really triggered. So he'll either shut down or suddenly prioritize hanging out with his friends. So hence the emotional intimacy of the romantic relationships don't go that deep. Mm. So this is a person who was parentified, who grew up and has now kind of landed with a disorganized attachment style. So they want it until they don't and they're hot. And then they're cold. So it's kind of like a walking mixed message. And the fucked up thing is that some people will look at that and find it kind of attractive or like a challenge or, you know, have this sexy fantasy that we could be the one to suddenly heal them. And then they'll give us everything we could ever want in a partner. Right. Uh, Yep. Right. (laughs) So of course with this guy, there's innocent women kind of getting hurt by his unhealed hurts and by him not being totally honest with what he's looking for. And as much as I talk shit about fuckboys, let's reframe this from his point of view, right? So he's got unhealed childhood hurts here, not only from parentification in this very intense way, but straight up grief followed by parentification in his former marriage. Mm. So now he's shielding himself from intimacy and from that potential to again, be parentified. So he's in a phase of his life where the pendulum has swung from one extreme, whereas a younger, he gave his mom everything. And then as when he was older, he gave his wife everything and totally exhausted himself. And now that pendulum has swung the other way, where now he has a very low tolerance for emotional availability and showing up for others, but, you know, maybe able to show up in other ways, or or at least says so. So Mm -hmm. we could also reframe this as someone who has set up very, very large boundaries so that they don't get hurt and burnt out again. And so this is a means of self-protection from those childhood hurts.
0: Oh, uh, that is it makes a lot of sense. Right. That it's it's sort of I mean, I relate to it right when I think about my mom uh, being in the hospital and how I was just like, I cannot fucking do it, dude. I can't mm-hmm. do it like, over it. Yeah. Like it, it is exhausting. And so I think one thing I just want to jump in and say real quick is for those of us who are parentified, I think it's really important to remember boundaries because, and it's like, we think about, I think often we think about boundaries as something we do for ourselves, which is true. And it's also something we do for our relationships. Because if I'm feeling so fucking exhausted all the time, eventually the people that I'm in relationship with are going to pay that price, right? Where I'm going to be like, Mm -hmm. I have nothing to give you because I've exhausted myself. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, having those boundaries, it's not just to protect us. It's also to protect the people we love so that we can refill our cup and be there for them, right? Absolutely. Let me ask you this. What about anxious attachment, right? Can, tell me about parentification and anxious attachment.
1: Right. So in the early 2000s, a family psychiatrist named John Bing Hall, right? He was looking into parentification and how that impacts attachment styles of a kid who later grows up. And lo and behold, he found that anxious attachment style, again, which is sometimes called insecure or ambivalent, is indeed associated with maladaptive parentification. So you you may remember that the anxious attachment is the kind where you have problems trusting others and being close with people, where you worry that they don't love you or that they're going to abandon you, and so you, to prevent the abandonment, tend to be clingy, or perhaps are willing to do things to keep that relationship, even if it means betraying your own emotions, or downplaying your own needs, letting yourself be walked all over, um, tolerating gaslighting, gaslighting yourselves, all that, all of the above, <laughs> right, etc. Yeah. Well, this kind of relationship ends up feeling pretty cold and distant or too overwhelming to their partner. Mm-hmm. So ironically, someone with this anxious attachment tends to have a lot of breakups. And when the breakups happen, these folks take it hard. Like really, really hard to the point of feeling utterly distraught and forever abandoned. So here's another mind Another pair of researchers, Cassidy and Berlin, they also found that adults who have this kind of anxious attachment style can sometimes exhibit a pathological pattern where the adults then cling to young children as a source of security. And what can that indicate? Yep, you guessed it, parentification. So there is additionally... An intergenerational component to these attachment styles, unless someone comes along and actually interrupts it.
0: Okay, so they found that parents with anxious attachment tend to parentify children because they are, they tend to cling and so yes. they're looking for security and so yes. they turn. Okay, well, that yes. makes a lot of sense. Their own kid. That is so. Fascinating. So, so for those of us who have anxious attachment style and we are parents, it's really important to look and make sure that we're not parentifying. I mean, for all of us who are parents, but particularly those of us who are anxiously attached, is that, is that kind of the takeaway?
1: Yes. Yes. And it is possible to intervene so that you do not carry forth that same pattern. Right. Right.
0: If you don't know that you're doing it, you know, Mm -hmm. then of of course you're going to, you're going to probably do it, but you need someone to kind of be like, hold up a mirror to that behavior. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What else can you tell us about how parentification can lead to defense mechanisms later down the road?
1: So Yeah, speaking of defense mechanisms and self-protection, last time we spoke about parentification, we talked about how parentification is linked with things like perfectionism, people-pleasing, and feeling inadequate. But there are other times where folks will react in a self-protective way as a result of parentification, which can look like developing a superiority complex Or a sense of hyper independence because you learned from a young age that you couldn't really rely on anyone else but yourself. Mm. So, here the superiority complex comes from something like, well, uh, the adults in my life didn't have their shit together. I've been the responsible one taking care of my mom, taking care of my sisters. I had to figure everything out on my own since I was 10, and I fucking did. So, really, I'm the only capable person I know of, right? So here, this can coincide with someone feeling highly resentful of others who they deem as less competent and also perhaps having a very high or unrealistically unrealistically high set of expectations of others. Mm,
0: okay. Well, so sorry to call my sister out right now. Oh, shit. <laughs> but it's so to me it's so fascinating to see the different ways that parentification can affect different um like personalities, right? Because for me, I went toward anxious attachment, people pleasing, um you know, I was the diplomat in the family, I, the peacekeeper. Uh, I had no boundaries. I had no needs. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, a, I'm a doormat. My sister went this route as far as I can tell, like, I don't, you know, I'm like armchair therapizing her right now, but, Mm -hmm. but whatever, you know, like she definitely comes from the space of like, no one fucking knows what they're doing. I'm the only one who can do it. And when I think back on it, you know, she was the older sister. She was um, the oldest of the family. She was the one who was, she, she was the one who was expected to keep it together. Right. When my mom was at work, she was the one who had to like, put the oven mitts on and slide the macaroni into the sink. you know, like, mm-hmm. she had to think fast and, and have the answers. And I think as a result, I mean, I know she's avoidant. I'm sure she knows she's, a, she like hates everyone. She'll, she's a total misanthrope. <laughs> okay. She'll, she'll say, she'll just say like, I hate everyone. Everyone sucks. Everyone's stupid. Right. And, and it's, it's her joke, but it's also not a joke, right? It's like. The kernel of truth, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where um I think the bottom line is. She can't trust anyone. She feels like she can't trust anyone, and of course, you're going to hate everyone if you can't trust any of them, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I just think it's so fascinating. She was the one who I think she really recoiled from my mom's emotional needs, whereas but would take on the sort of physical
1: tasks, like the instrumental parentification, exactly. And And it sounds like you were taking on the more emotional parentified role.
0: Exactly. And so it's so interesting to see the different ways that it affected us in adulthood. So anyway, um, sorry, Q, sorry to throw that on you, but it's, it's true. And you know, it (laughs) okay. Question for you. Mm -hmm. We were talking the other day, you mentioned a couple terms that I hadn't heard before. And so I think it would, it would be good to spend some time on those. You said something about internalizers and externalizers. So tell me about those.
1: Sure. So there's a great book called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, written by Dr. Lindsay Gibson, where, among other juicy topics, she talks about how children react and behave and cope in relationships and situations, even outside of the family, in terms of how the kid is dealing with the pain and pressure that comes out of an unhealthy parent relationship. So that can also include parentification. Thinking of how kids will react to this kind of pain, there's two kinds. There's those who we call externalizers, and then there's the internalizers. Externalizers are described as impulsive. They act now, they think later, they like to experiment. Um, sometimes they can have behavioral problems at school. they're very emotionally expressive, and they put all their feelings like anger and hurt and everything all on display. Now internalizers tend to be highly self-reflective. they think a lot and they tend to stuff and hide their pain and they try to avoid saying and doing things that might cause trouble. Mm -hmm. And they also experience blockages when it comes to expressing their hurts. And they tend to want to make themselves small or invisible. And there's this fear they have of letting other people down and for feeling guilty or for failing, right? So externalizers will expect other people to change, or that it's someone else's responsibility to fix something. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not my responsibility to step up. Whereas internalizers believe it's up to me to change things. It's my responsibility to fix this. I need to step up. So uh, the author Gibson, she calls this the healing fantasy. And she says that um, in adult relationships, the relationship downfall of an internalizer is to overextend and sacrifice too much in a relationship for the other person. And that internalizer ends up feeling depleted and resentful. Now, a kicker for the internalizer is that they also feel ashamed and apologetic when they ask for help. Hmm. The relationship downfall for an externalizer is to be attracted to impulsive people, and they may become too dependent on others for stability and support. So the whole like internal externalizer thing, it isn't black and white as that. It's not one or the other. I think of it as a spectrum. And most people are a mix of the two with either the internalizer being prominent or the externalizer being prominent. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think back if we as the parentified child dealt with our pain as an externalizer or an internalizer or some kind of mix. Mm. And it's interesting to think how that may have changed or stayed the same as we go into adulthood. Mm. So I, I don't know, I, it'd be interesting to take a poll. I'd say that most parentified children are predominantly internalizers.
0: Yeah. I was certainly not someone who acted up at school. That was like, I mean, I was such a people pleaser and I was, um, so well also, you know, part of my upbringing was like a lot of fear at home and getting in trouble was really scary also. So like there, I definitely feel a lot of God. I mean, I think I have a whole podcast on trauma. I'm probably an internalizer. (laughs) I think I, I reflect a lot on like what I need Mm -hmm. to change. Yeah. That is fascinating. And so externalizers, is there a, like a difference? Maybe, maybe you can answer this and maybe you can't, is there a difference in degree of like how, like what sort of emotional depth Like, are we talking about extroverted versus introverted? Because I am pretty extroverted. I'm just thinking out loud here for what it might look like. Is there like a difference in emotional depth between them?
1: Um, I would say more emotional expression. Hmm. Um, also thinking about not so much introvert extrovert, but where the, have you ever heard of a term called the locus of control? Ooh, no, do tell. It's it's not like locust like the bug. It's locus of control. It basically means where do I feel power and responsibility to affect change? Uh, Is it within myself or is it with another person or is it is is it with a system or with, you know, Jesus Christ or whoever? So if I believe that I haven't internal locus of control, I feel that it's within me, within my possibility, uh, my capability to affect change, AKA, you know, have power. And if I have an external locus of control, then I have the belief that that power to affect change exists outside of myself. Okay. This
0: is fascinating. So, um, the reason why, and I'm like, thinking out loud, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the reason why most parentified children go on to become internalizers is because our locus of control, we, we can't control our outside environment. Like for me, my mom's emotional upheavals and her like sobbing and asking us why she was alone and, um, you know, coming home and slapping herself in front of me and telling me I'm never going to be okay. And these things that, you know, the different ways that I was parentified emotionally, I couldn't. And, and this was also a source of massive anxiety for me, but I couldn't, as much as I tried, I couldn't fix it. Right. Like I couldn't change Mm -hmm. the external, all I could do was change like my only control was the internal, and I think actually what's so interesting now as an adult is that like that feeling of powerlessness is a real trigger for me, and I it actually triggers me in such a big way in politics, right? Like with all this abortion oh legislation, God. yeah, mm-hmm. right, where like I I go to that same place of despair where the the external seems so fucking crazy to me, mm-hmm. and instead of me being like okay, well. I'll just vote <laughs> right yeah I'll just vote or I'm gonna like well I do all that too of course right but I my first response is to go into complete despair and it feels very similar to being a kid and having my mom have these freakouts and I the the feeling of like I can't do anything about this and so what I came to learn over time was I can't nothing I do on the outside is going to work. Right. I think when I was young, I thought that I could fix it. Right. Which is why I got into her lap and said, I'll marry you. I'll be your husband. Later. I was just sort of like, I'm not even going to your hospital bed because I just like, there's nothing I can do anyway. Nothing I do works. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think like, well, let me spend many years in therapy instead, actually. (laughs) That is so That is really fascinating. And I wanted to ask another thing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the other day that parentification can super impact the nervous system. Can you talk about that? Because that's sort of related to what we're talking about, right? That overwhelm.
1: Yes. So any kind of stress or danger or trauma or intense excitement, um, including harmful parentification is going to have an impact on the human nervous system right? Specifically the sympathetic human nervous system by keeping it in high alert. And by high alert, I mean a state of hyper arousal, you know, the whole like fight, flight, freeze, fawn thing. Mm -hmm. So when the sympathetic nervous system is activated with stress or risk of danger, our brain and our body is flooded with hormones and signals. And our our heart rate increases, we could get very hot or very cold and blood and oxygen is diverted to our large muscles. So we can get ready to run away. Um, you know, the pupils dilate digestion stops, um, our buttholes clench and other true other non-essential functions of the body are shut down because the essential systems need all the energy we can muster to help keep us alive. And right, this has helped us survive as a species, right? It helped us to run away from the saber tooth tiger and it keeps us alert to danger. It helps us focus and get ready to perform and prepare to give that speech, study for that test, run that marathon. So it's not all bad when the nervous system is aroused, right, it's survival and information signals that keep us alive and keep us ready. Where it can become harmful is when the nervous system is on high alert for prolonged periods of time without a break and without a chance to relax. So we see this with PTSD. So parentification that is maladaptive and overly burdensome to the child affects the nervous system in those same ways. Parentification is a process. It's it's not a one-time event. So what else happens when people, and I mean kids who are developing, are on high alert for a prolonged amount of time with um, an an unhealthy caregiver? Mm. Well, people who had to play the role of the parent for their own volatile, addicted, dysregulated, traumatized, angry, unstable parents had to learn the survival skill of having to notice any and all changes and micro changes in the environment and with people. So this can look like being highly sensitive to the smallest changes in people's facial expression or the way that the tone and volume of dad's voice sounds the sound of someone closing the door, the way that mom holds her body, the look in their eyes, right? So, for folks with highly unpredictable parents, right? Parents who could be very uh, happy, go lucky, and warm one day, and then like really angry and like, you know, off the rails the next day, it was so inconsistent and unpredictable for the kid. So, when the parents are really unpredictable like this, when our nervous systems are developing from a young age, it's impossible for us to relax. And our nervous system therefore has to remain in a hyper-aware, hyper-vigilant state. So not only do we have parentified people who are now adults, who are highly observant and sensitive to others, and that can sometimes be a good thing, but we have people who never really got a chance for their nervous system to calm down. You know, they're always waiting for something bad to happen. They're bracing for their own protection or maybe bracing and are ready to step in and protect their family members, you know, or they feel like they're on alert because they need to be able to spring into action. So I can't emphasize enough the role of the nervous system in mental health and in mental health healing. So for most therapy clients, most of the time, one of the first things we do is establish a sense of safety in the present moment, right? To teach folks how to pause and assess the state of their nervous system. And we learn about the brain and the body and about things like the window of tolerance and how to help people use their strengths and tools to return their nervous system into a calmer state instead of always staying in that hyper aroused mode. So that was all about the sympathetic nervous system, right? The, the one that keeps you up and keeps you on alert, but there's also the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the part that helps us to relax, right? That's the rest and digesting. So mm-hmm. here the heart rate decreases, um, we start to digest again, the pupils constrict and yes, we unclench that butthole. So we're able to relax and do those things when the danger and the stress is over, when the nervous system is balanced and regulated once again. So and here's the kicker. How do we access that parasympathetic nervous system when we're just like not used to it? Mm. Well, um, to access it, meaning to help us relax, there are some things we could do to help it along. And a lot of them are things that we're already doing that we generally know to be healthy. So for example, physical exercise, slow, deep breaths, yoga, um, being in fresh, crisp air, being in nature, being around safe people in social settings, eating healthy foods, laughing and singing, right? So if you're already doing those good things for yourself, AKA, you know, self-love, being a good caregiver for yourself, what it could be a good strategy is to do those same things, but now add the element of telling yourself something like, wow, this healthy thing that I'm doing is also helping my nervous system to relax, and so I'm actually helping myself to heal from some childhood trauma, and that's pretty cool. Now, there's also some additional tips and strategies for accessing that parasympathetic nervous system that maybe aren't as obvious, and those include things like yawning, uh, gurgling, gargling, whatever you call it, um, humming, chanting, also um, Exposure to cold temperature increases the parasympathetic activity, so things like splashing cold water on your face, or finishing your shower with cool water, or sleeping with the window open so your room is cooler at night, Um, also specifically to massage your neck and shoulder area. So all of those things and more help us to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, it helps us to relax. It helps us to regulate. And for anyone who'd like to learn more, you can check out the research of Dr. Stephen Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S. And there's a ton of YouTubes and podcasts on the topic.
0: Oh my God. That like as you were talking, I was flashing back. I think I've told this story one other time on the pod that I can think of, but um years ago when I was living in Oakland. I, I was a fucking wreck. I had had a huge, like I, I got really ill and, um, could no one could figure out what was wrong. It was just like a, it was a shit show. Mm. Anyway, I ended up finding an ad for this woman who did, um, a kind of, I, I want to say it's a Chinese form of medicine where they very slowly and gently massage your stomach and, I remember I went in to see her and I was like on the table and she was doing her thing. And all of a sudden she stopped and she looked at me and she had this look on her face. And she said, did you feel safe as a child? And no one had ever asked me that. And Mm -hmm. I had never considered the question. And, and I think after that, she asked, like, do you feel safe now? And what I realized was I had never really known what safe felt like for exactly the reason you're talking about. You never knew what you were going to get one day to the next in my house with either of my parents, you know? So yeah, that, that is so helpful because my anxiety can go nuts in ways. It's just like not proportionate to a situation, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like maybe someone at work is mad at me. Maybe my email didn't accurately convey how sorry I am about not attaching the thing I was supposed to, you know, like, Oh yeah. Like whatever the thing is, it's like, um, you know, when other people in situations where other people are just like, Oh, it'll work out. I'm like the fuck, you know, like, how do you figure? But it's so obvious that some people just weren't raised in chaos and they can chill in the face of stressors or just not take them so seriously, and, and speaking of stressors, someone DM'd me recently with this, qu- this question. I was like, Oh shit, this is so important to this conversation. She asked about how we have adult relationships with parents who parentified us. And this is covering a lot of ground, right? Because there's a fact that these people, our parents often probably haven't worked through their dysfunctional patterns and habits. Um, maybe they have, but I think. For many of us, that is not the case. So there's the danger of being put in those situations again as adults in ways that can feel really triggering, kind of like what you were talking about with that guy who became an EMT with his wife right. and everything, but, but with our parents, right. Where they're like, Hey, I need you to show up for me in the exact same way. And on top of that, there's also our rage and resentment, right? Like when we're seven, we're so eager to please, or you know, most of us are, and we want to do whatever our parents want us to do in that moment. But when we're 27, 37, 47, we're like, well, I'll speak for myself. There's a part of me that's just like, you can get fucked, right? (laughs) Like I'm not fucking doing this anymore. So, or there's another part of me, I'll, I'll be completely honest. There's another part of me before. I mean, I think actually my, you can get fucked is new and it's like a very, um, healthy, development for me where i i never said to anyone you can get fucked but it's the energy of i'm not Mm -hmm. fucking doing this like you don't Mm -hmm. get to talk to me this way you don't get to treat me this way i'm not your fucking therapist you know like all all the boundary stuff but before that it was a lot of we're gonna go through this same pattern and i'm gonna go to my room and sob and journal about what an asshole you are or whatever, but I'm never going to show you because like my job is to keep the peace and blah, blah, blah. So it, I think it can look different ways, but yeah. I mean, basically question, how do we navigate relationships with these parents who, who parentified us now that we're adults?
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, great question. So um, assuming that we want and are willing to pursue a relationship with our parents now, I'll say that emotional freedom and stepping out of your old parentified child role are the keys here when you're deciding to, you know, remain in a relationship with those parents. Meaning you have to, you know, slowly get to the point where you can freely express your true self your authentic emotions and needs independent of your parents. And in doing so, we hope to be aware of what our emotions and needs are. And it's also important to know and recognize when we are with parents again, to know when we are triggered into stepping back into those old roles, right? Because ultimately we want to get out of that previous role reversal, So, no matter what your relationship with your parents looks like now or in the future, emotional freedom, right? Autonomy as the antidote to codependence is the goal here. So, my general advice to start would be with your expectations of the parents. So, in her book, Gibson really talks about and validated that very common fantasy, right? This healing fantasy that I think every child of uh, unhealthy parents have, which is that, well, I'm the child, now I'm an adult, and I've gone to all this therapy, and I've been doing all this work, and you know, I'm, I've had all these epiphanies, and I've worked on prepping myself for a really big conversation or series of conversations where I just get super fucking real and lay it on the line. And my hope, my fantasy, is that when the parents hear that, they're finally going to clue the fuck in, right? And have a change of heart. And then they're going to realize the error of their ways and start showing warmth. And we're all going to you know, hold hands and sing into the sunset together or whatever. So it's understandable, absolutely, to hold out this hope. We also have to really ask ourselves, is this realistic, right? You have to be very, very realistic with your expectations of what your relationship can be with your parents based on what you know about their character, their history, their mentality, their level of maturity. It's like essentially don't expect to squeeze blood from stone Mm. because if we just believe that there's going to be a sudden and permanent change I'm sorry to say, but most people would be setting themselves up for serious disappointment and frustration. So being realistic with the expectations with our parents now, in a way, is a form of self-protection. And therefore, it's also kind of a way of self care giving, and self-love. Mm-hmm. The next consideration here is what Gibson calls detached observation. And it's kind of Buddhist. You know, it's like, when, when we are thinking of or interact with that parent now, we essentially take a step back and we put ourselves into an observer role. And we think like a scientist, meaning we kind of think like um, a psychologist or a sociologist or what have you, who is just collecting information about human nature and being curious and asking questions like, wow, hmm, their shoulders really hunched over when I shared how I was feeling. Or, okay, they sounded really tense, even though they said they were fine. Mm. That's interesting. So kind of this uh, neutral observer thing as a way to take the teeth out of these interactions. And we also want to be noticing when that healing fantasy, right, is being triggered within ourselves, right? So we need to notice our breathing to try to keep ourselves detached. Maybe we need to say a statement to repeat to ourselves. Like, you know, I can only be responsible for myself or, you know, if I could have fixed it, it would have already worked right now. Mm -hmm. So, right. Taking the practice into being an observer of the parent, as well as what is happening with us. If we find ourselves triggered back into the old pattern.
0: And that's okay. So, so right. So doing that sort of observer Buddhist work you're talking about in the moment when we're talking with our parents in order to remove that sort of reactive triggered feeling like, okay, this is, I don't, yes. I can see this happening without getting so reactive and triggered by it. That's what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Got yes. it. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's- easier said than done, right? But it's it's like meditation, it's like practice. So another consideration is also to get really good at assessing your parents' level of emotional maturity, mm. as in what is the emotional age or level or capacity of the person in front of us? Is dad acting like a petulant 15-year-old? Mm is mom reverting back to a hurt 10-year-old. Does dad even have the skills to regulate his anger? Oh, he hasn't learned that yet, right? So once we've determined the emotional maturity of the person in front of us, we can have a better ability to anticipate or predict or to understand what someone's responses are and what they might be. And to know that their reaction is not because of us, mm. right? Their reaction is due to their own stuff. And to remind ourselves, we cannot control or fix them because if we could, it would have already fucking worked by now, right? Right, right. <laughs> so um, I would say the next thing is I mean, and these are in no like particular order, but the next thing is to recognize and eventually get away from the role of your former, you know, role reversal child self, and to now step into your adult, mature, empowered, independent self, right? We need to see when and where we get stuck or pulled back into the caregiver role and to know when we're triggered with the impulse to comfort the parents or bite our tongues or not say what we feel or to try to fix everyone's shit. So it's important to be very aware and anchored and to validate our own independent thoughts and feelings and to try to keep them separate and uncontaminated by the parents. Mm. So the idea is that once we know what we're dealing with, we can have a better chance of consciously choosing to do things differently. And that when we do things differently, you know, there's no guarantee that the parents are going to change. But the hope is that the parent will themselves choose to engage in a more honest way and in a way that is appropriate now for the parent child relationship. So don't get me wrong, this shit is not easy. And parents, You know, may indeed notice us doing things differently, and they may try to do things back to reel us into the old pattern. So it's going to take practice to make the steps to emotional freedom. But every time you do, you expand your awareness. And every time you do something differently and state something you are truly feeling and needing, you are healing. And, you know, hey, if you find that this is all just too toxic, to be involved with them. Despite your best efforts, you always have the right to give yourself permission to step back, to try again next week, to, you know, uh, process what happened with a trustworthy friend, to grieve, to scream, to do whatever you need to do to protect and soothe and express.
0: Mm, Oh my God. I, I, I'm, when you were describing feeling like oh, if I just say the right thing, if I just figure out the magical Mm -hmm. key Mm -hmm. to unlock this situation.
1: That's the healing fantasy. Yeah.
0: Right. And it's that internalizer thing of like, there's something in me that I just have to do differently. I just have to figure out what it is and then, and then everything will be great. And man, if, I mean, if I could wrap up like my relationship, my adolescent relationship with my dad in a, in one sentence, it would be exactly that. It would be like, I'll, I just have to figure out what the magical thing Mm. is and it'll fix this whole thing. And I definitely have experienced that as an adult with my parents And it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really gotten clear that like, yeah, there's nothing I'm ever going to do or say that's going to fix this. All I can really do is is have the boundaries that protect me. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't convince them. I can't like therapize, you know, that was my thing with my mom was being like, let me give you advice. Let me give you advice. Let me teach you. I'll show you and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it not working and feeling like so depleted. Right one thing I want to say too, is like that pattern of, I just have to find the thing to fix this. And Oh, by the way, I'm also kind of in denial about your emotional capacity and your emotional maturity. It also happens outside of our parents, right? When we're parentified, like, sure. We're so used to being in intimate relationships with people who are not emotionally mature. And we're so used to thinking that there's, if we could just say it a different way or show them a different way, or it just kind of, we'll just be really patient and, and talk about this again and whatever And then like, finally, you know, years down the road, sometimes realizing, fuck, there's nothing I can do. So I also want to call attention that like, this is how, not just how as Mm -hmm. adults, how we, how we handle these parents, but this is also probably going to be a pattern that we see in relationships outside of our parents because our parents are this way. Right. So like, this is not only useful for parents. It's also useful for all of these other relationships that we develop outside where we we have that fantasy, that healing fantasy, or we're blind to their, um, emotional capacity, their emotional maturity. So creating those boundaries and understanding our needs around this is helpful with all of our adult relationships. Absolutely. Okay. So I do want to end on a high note uh, because the fact is that there are definitely specific strengths that parentified people have and can draw on. Talk us through that a little bit.
1: Sure. So today and on the other episode, obviously we were discussing parentification as a particular type of trauma, right? Where the parentification is harmful and has long-term effects, the bad stuff. But there's also another type of parentification that can have more positive or beneficial effects. And we call that adaptive parentification. So I want to say that even from a tough situation, there are outcomes and lessons that can be even beautiful with the adaptive type of parentification. So for example, I know many parentified kids who are now adults, who are really empathetic and compassionate, caring people. In fact, many parentified people will gravitate towards a caregiving career, right? So you may find that your therapist, like yours truly, or your doctor, or your friend who's a nurse, or your uh, neighbor who works in childcare, you may find that they were parentified themselves, And I find that folks who were parentified often take their close relationships very seriously because they feel such a sense of loyalty towards others. So there's so many parentified adults who have done the work to heal, right? To process the pain, to build self-worth and respect and boundaries And they've been working so hard to attain emotional independence. And so what you have is many people coming out of this experience so committed to compassion and healing, but also committed to balanced, healthy relationships. And in fact, these people will approach every potential new relationship with a lot of care because they want to be a healthy person hanging out with other healthy people. And that sounds Mm. like what you're doing, Remy, right? So it can also be very um, feeling like this person is resourceful, right? Feeling very competent and wise because they've had such mature experiences from a young age. Mm. And so just imagine having the mindset and having the way of coping that when hard shit comes up later in life, you're thinking, well, God, look what I've been through already. I can definitely handle what is happening now because I've already been through hell and back. Mm -hmm. Right. So to me, that means that there's a kind of confidence and fortitude that comes with this track record of having navigated so much already. A lot of my clients who come to therapy to deal with parentification trauma will come to a place where they say, you know what? The bullshit stops with me. Mm. I'm not going to carry this on to the people I love. Like, why would I? I I know how bad this feels and I'm not going to pass it on. I'm not going to do this to my kids. So the cycle of trauma ends here. And in my experience with clients, especially people of color, their attitude is also linking up with a very strong connection to their ancestors, meaning that there's a recognition and respect for the strength and triumphs of their ancestors, as well as compassion and you know sadness for the trauma and challenges that their ancestors went through, you know, to create an unhealthy dynamic. And so many people now intentionally want to heal that lineage on behalf of their ancestors who, you know, for whatever reasons couldn't do it themselves, as well as to not pass it on to the next generation. And that's so powerful. Wow, my god. Yes.
0: I love that so much. And I think that when we are abused in this way, it is so important, right. To look at those wounds and look at healing them and and look at where we've been broken. And yeah, like, man, when you were talking about being able to sort of gauge a vibe in a room because someone's, uh, facial expressions or, Mm -hmm. you know, like that level of empathy that heightened, you know, it is hypervigilance, but it's also like an empathy where I can, I can really sense when someone is tense or feels left out suddenly, or, Oh, something, someone just said something and that person got deflated. Right. Like I can tune into Mm -hmm. that right away. And I think that is, that is a superpower, right? That is something that we, we are strong in a way that you know, that some other people aren't. And, and we can use that to, what do I want to say? I don't want to say strengthen ourselves necessarily, but we can use that as these sort of um, stepping stones to, to enrich our lives. That's really what I want to say. Like mm. we don't have to be doormats when we're empathetic, when we take that superpower empathy and combine it with the boundaries that we start creating when we really love and respect ourselves. Right. That combo is fucking amazing, right? Like I really love you and I care about you and I also care about me. We need to figure out a space where the two of those come together. We need to figure out how those two Venn diagrams overlap and if they can't mm-hmm. then I have to I have to let this go and if they can great, let's move forward. Like these are the levels that we can get to and I and I just think it's so beautiful that that we ended there. Thank you so so much, Amanda for coming on for, Mm -hmm. for all of this insight and accumulating all of this research. I was like, I was fascinated (laughs) hearing all of these details, just totally fascinated. How can people get a hold of you if they want to reach you?
1: Sure. Um, my practice is called alchemy mental wellness. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. My website is alchemymentalwellness.com.
0: Amazing. Awesome. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Instagram at the Patrama Party. That's my obviously Patrama Party handle. Also, I'm at Remy's, R E M E E Z, if you want to, um, I don't know, hang out with me. <laughs> That's where I am. Or you can email me also at party at gmail.com. I don't know why I didn't do the Patrama Party at Gmail, but I fucked that up. So it's Patrama Party at Gmail. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, totally hit me up. I love that. Or a question like I live for that shit. Also, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute rate, review, subscribe, it makes a huge difference. And it honestly means so much to me. I read through every single review that's left and it fucking makes my day. Although I will say Spotify has a glitch, at least on my end where you can't give my pod. specific but maybe other pods as well any more than four stars which i don't understand uh but apple is all good also if you'd like to support the pod you can now you can give like a dollar five dollars ten dollars a month whatever you want to do go to anchor.fm forward slash the patrama party and scroll down to the support button and until next time baby enjoy the party
1: bye